I, I always have loved the study of creation. I love, I love it. I, you know, I love to read about it. I love to experience it. I love to go out and, and you know, go into in areas of the country where you just walk and you say, boy, look, God created this. And I love what it reveals about God. It reveals his power, but it reveals so much more. You don't have to look real hard in creation and see that, that it reveals his incredible sense of beauty, you know, that God designed beauty. And, and, it's, and it says something about who he is. Or you, you look in the animal kingdom and you see the incredible diversity, you know, in colors and, and fish and animals. And, and, and not only that, but oftentimes you look and you see in that diversity, there's even a lot of humor. And, um, and, and it's definitely true. Now, when I think about creation and I think about where God reveals those things, one of the places that I think he reveals all these elements the most is when he created humanity, and in humanity he created male and female. I mean, it's all there. You've got the beauty, you have the, you know, the diversity, you have even the humor. Um, I know there's all kinds of people that will argue that there isn't much of a difference Male and female are nearly interchangeable, and some that argue that it's just our plumbing, others that argue that you know, there are incidental differences that just developed over time by evolution or societal pressure. And I always listen to people who argue that, and I think, you know, clearly if you think that, you haven't spent much time interacting with people of the opposite sex. You, know, you, you don't have much experience. Um, our, our diversity goes way beyond the physical differences. You know, we, we think differently. We're wired differently from the outset. And anyone who especially is married can tell you that, that that's true. That's, that's something that we experience. Amen, yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the things that you, when I look at that is that one of those huge differences is in the way that we communicate. And so when you think about the way we communicate, you know, men, we tend to focus on facts. We tend to be very direct. Uh, when we initiate a conversation, we have a goal, and, and we're saying everything to accomplish that goal. You know, women on the other side, well, let's just say they, they communicate differently. Um, you know, when they do so, the whole purpose of communication is different. They're focused on the experience. It's about connecting with the other person. You know, men focus on the facts. Women, the way they feel about the facts are important as to the experience itself. And I think about this as, uh, as it plays out in my home. You know, my wife Sandy is involved in real estate and real estate photography, and oftentimes, you know, we'll both come home in the evening, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say, you know, ask her some about her day, and I'll say, well, you know, how many jobs did you have today? And she'll then go ahead and answer me with a 10-minute answer that starts with all the phone calls she had, all the meetings she had, the lunch she had with a friend, the person that cut her off in the interstate, and all these other events. And after 10 minutes of listening to her, I'll, in, in half humor, I'll look back at her and I'll say, so how many jobs did you have today? <laughs> and there's some humor in there, and really what I'm asking is, I know that in the last 10 minutes you answered my question, but for my, the life of me, I can't find where the answer is. You know, it's there somewhere, but I don't know where. Now, I will tell you, early in my marriage, I would have responded a whole lot more in frustration. It's like, I asked you a question, why didn't you answer me? And, you know, you just went on. And, and what I've grown to appreciate is that although we're very different, although it's hard to understand, I've learned to appreciate that those differences are valuable. Um, you know, I come back and there's an affectionate humor because I realize that, yes, I can't find the answer, but there's something there. You see, I realize and recognize that, that she's wired to connect. And, and I'm asking a certain question, and the fact is, because God has wired her differently, she's answering something different than I asked. 
See, she's just not trying to get me the information. She's trying to draw me into her life because she has a deeper goal in communicating than the question that I asked. And so the challenge is, how do I learn to listen to her? Yeah, it can times be confusing, but there's something there. Now, I use that illustration because as I've thought about it, I've realized that in some ways that may be similar to the challenge that we have in studying the Bible. That a lot of times when we come to the Bible, I come to a whole lot of passages that seem to be incredibly confusing. I'm trying to figure out where it's going. And I think part of the challenge is that when we come to the Bible, it's natural for us to come with certain expectations. We have certain ideas of what it should say, that we expect a directness, that it's going to teach us or tell us the story, and, and we come looking for that. But oftentimes, that's not what we get. And I think one of the reasons is that we come expecting certain things and we miss the fact that God's trying to communicate to something, something to us that's a whole lot bigger than the question we're asking. He's not just trying to tell us a fact or a teaching or tell us about a story. He's trying to go much, much deeper. He's trying to deal with communicating a truth in a way that challenges our hearts and our minds and our thinking and, and reveals our heart. And, and so sometimes we come and there's passages that are just really hard to understand. And I think we're going to see that so often in John. That's, that's even part of the reason why we have the class on Sunday nights learning principles to help us figure out how to understand the way that God communicates in his word. Well, in this passage, we see this, this uh, I think, somewhat confusing passage. Because when you look at John 6, John 6 is really primarily almost all about Jesus doing this miracle of multiplying the bread and then explaining it. We saw last week in verses 1 through 15 him doing this miracle of taking a boy's lunch of five rolls of bread and a couple of fish and multiplying it and feeding thousands of people. And then we pick up in verse 22 all these people coming to Jesus and wanting him to do it again, and Jesus explains the miracle. And he explains it, calling himself the bread of life and, and what, he's, what the meaning of the miracle was all about. And so we look at this and we say, right in the middle of that, you have this little story of Jesus walking on water. And, and the amazing thing is there's no explanation about it. It just is there. And you say, how in the world does walking on water fit in with these two other stories? A friend of mine you know, said, you know, explained it. He said, it's almost like you have this little story of walking on water and it's between two slices of bread. You know, multiplying the bread and him being the bread of life. And, and it's just there. And what we've got to realize is that it's not there by accident. You know, some people said, well, it just happened there. And well, then why did Jesus do it then? He could have, you know, they crossed the lake many times. Why did he choose to walk on water at that time? And I think we've got to realize it's because it explains something about the miracle that just happened. It's not isolated. It's actually connected. It's not expected, but it's saying something. It's explaining something about the miracle and the people's reaction to it. And that's why I think the key thing is in verses 14 and 15. So when we read the, chat, the verses this morning, you know, you look at it, well, verse 16 seems to start the whole story. Why did you go back to verse 14 and 15? Because that sets up the reason behind this miracle. So we look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus had just done this miracle of multiplying the bread Feeding 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people. And we read in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And I think what it shows is it shows a tendency 
not only for people then, but for us today, to try to come to God and to make him the king we expect him to be, the, the king that we want him to be. Again, look at verse 14. It says, what, they, the people saw the sign that he had done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, the key is that I think that they are seeing him multiplying the bread and feeding thousands of people in the middle of a wilderness, and it reminds them of Moses. It reminds them of the manna, and we're going to see this play out next week. Very clearly, they're thinking of Moses. They're thinking of the manna. They're thinking about this prophet who came beforehand, and by God's grace, he fed thousands of people in the wilderness for years. And so then they quote this prophecy from Moses. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is saying, there's another one that's going to come that's like me, but even more. And they're saying, this is the guy. This is the one who's like Moses. And and they're looking not only that he provided manna, but what else did Moses do? Well, he's the one that led the people out of Egypt. He's the one that overthrew the Roman oppression or the or the Egyptian oppression. And if he's like Moses and Moses got rid of Egypt, well then Jesus will be the one that will get rid of Rome. And so that explains what happens in verse 15. They come to him and they say, Okay, Jesus, you know, they, they want to come and make him king. They want to take him by force. They say, our agenda is that we want to get rid of the Roman oppression. We want an earthly king. And so we think that what we need to do is, is Jesus, we're going to make you king, and, and, and you do what Moses did. You know, you, you destroy Rome like Moses destroyed Egypt. The problem is, is that, is that, again, in their day and in our day, we do this because we're looking at what we perceive to be our greatest need. The question is, you know, why, what is our greatest need? What is the thing that Jesus came to do? What is the problem he came to fix? Because our understanding of our greatest need will always define what kind of king we expect Jesus to be. See, they saw Jesus as being the one who was going to come and defeat their greatest enemy, and their greatest enemy was external oppression. It was the Roman Empire. The greatest enemy was their lack of resources. He was going to be the one that was going to feed them and satisfy desires and give them what they wanted. You see, they didn't want to be changed. And and at the end of the miracle, they hadn't been changed. The only thing that had been changed is that their desires had been filled. They still had the same appetites as before. And they looked at it and they said, okay, the appetites that we have, Jesus can help us accomplish those appetites. But you see, Jesus didn't come to help us accomplish or fulfill the appetites that we've had. He didn't come to help us to not change and just accomplish who we were before. He came to, you know, not give us his power. He came to change us from the inside out. There are many people in many churches that preach, you know, something that versions of what is often called, you know, health, wealth gospel or prosperity gospel and and this idea that, you know, that if you come to Jesus and if you do the right thing, if you pray the right way, if you give the right amount of money, if you do this, then, then he's going to prosper you. He's going to give you your best life. He's going to make you healthy and he's going to make you, you know, wealthy. You know, he's going to give you a better business. He's going to be- give you better kids, a better marriage. He's going to, whatever you wanted before, Jesus is a means to get that. But again, what we've got to realize is that Jesus is saying here, no, I didn't come 
to fulfill the appetites that you had before, to leave you unchanged, but just help you accomplish who you were. I came to deal with a deeper need, the real need, the deepest need for all of us isn't what we would necessarily want. It's what God looks in our souls and says, this is what you need. Our deepest need is that we're broken in our relationship with God. Our deepest need is our, is our sin. And yes, in coming, he accomplishes victory in every area of life. And that's one of the things we see through his healings. Does he want to heal your marriage? Does he want to heal you know, every aspect of life? Yes. You see, but his deepest concern is not with those external things, but an internal spiritual reality of a broken relationship with God. You know, their need wasn't to be delivered from Rome. It was to be delivered from sin and death. And that's why even we see at the last week of Jesus' life, on Sunday, everybody's crawling out, Hosanna, you know, the Savior that we want. And by Friday, they're calling out, crucify him, because they realize that we want a Savior, but we want a Savior from Rome. But if he's not come to save us from Rome, we're not interested in that kind of Savior. We want a God that we can control, the God that, you know, that conforms to our desires, not a God that tells us that we have to change and says that we have to conform to who he is. See, again, we've got to recognize that our greatest need, if you're here, and, you, and maybe it's some of these practical needs that drive you here, and, that's, and, and again, I want to come back and say, is God concerned? Yes. Can he bring healing in every area? Yes. You see, but those are only symptoms, and he does deal with the symptoms, but, but he's not concerned only with the symptoms. He wants to go deeper to the deepest issue of our broken relationship with God because of our sin. And again, if you're here and if you come and you say, but that's not the Jesus I think of. Again, what you have happening here is people have a king that they expect. And I hear this all the time. I'll talk to people and they'll say, you know, we'll talk about something and the Bible says, well, that's not what I think of Jesus. When I think of God, I think of a God like this. Jesus is all loving. Jesus is this. And, and what we have to realize is, is that if we come and if the Jesus we believe in it's the Jesus we like and the Jesus that we have created in our mind. We don't have a personal relationship with the real God. Whatever we think we have is a relationship with the creation in our own mind. There's a God who is. And the only way that we can have a relationship with God is to have a personal relationship, not with a projection of ourselves and our own values, but to have a relationship with the God who is. So again, you have all these people, and they come, and they want to take Jesus by force in verse 15. They want to make him king. And what is his response? Perceiving that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And you know what he's saying? He's listen, if we come and we say that, Jesus, I want you, I want to follow you, you know, but I want you to be the king that I expect and I demand. See, again, we're not going to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'll take whatever you have to offer. No, he withdraws. He says, no, you can't have a relationship. with." He withdraws from the people here. And in the same way, if we want a Messiah, a king, a God that we can control, a king that we can define, we will not have a relationship with the true God. God withdraws from us. And whatever we think we have is only a is a relationship with, with ourselves, with, with the sense that we've projected in our, own mind, in our own mind. What it's teaching here is that it's not only, you know, it's our tendency to attempt to make Jesus the God we want, but to truly embrace him, we have to embrace him for the king who he is. 
And that's what's being taught in this whole passage. You see, this passage of the walking on the water is in response to this. It's saying, okay, let me present the true nature of this king, of this Jesus who really is. And, and they wanted a king that they can control, one that they could come and take by force and make him become king. And Jesus has said, no, I'm the king that cannot be controlled. Again, that's what we see here coming down, and he, he withdraws from them. But it's not only that. But we look now in verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. They got in the boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. That was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So it seems like now he's not only withdrawn from the people, but he's withdrawn from his disciples, and he's going to try to teach them something. And they're all supposed to go across the board. And it's interesting that it seems as if they know that Jesus told them earlier, you know, if I'm not there by sunrise, you know, then go on ahead without me. And Jesus intentionally isn't there. He didn't return in time because he's doing that. And, and not only that, it's interesting when it says it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. It's kind of setting something up. There was a darkness. There was a sense that Jesus was absent and there was a darkness. There was something that, that was going to happen outside of their control. So then we come to 18, and the sea became rough and a strong wind was blowing. We, we came that there was a, this wind that came up, this strong wind Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, it's telling us there that it was strong enough that this boat that would usually go by sails, they had to take the sails down. It was a storm. It was something that if they kept the sail up, you know, it was going to capsize the boat. So here they are in the middle, literally, it's the Sea of Galilee is about eight, eight miles across. And so if they're going from one side to another, they're smack in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the storm has come up, they're, you know, they're rowing, they're trying to make, make headway, but it's a strong enough storm that they can't. In the middle of this, we're told that Jesus appeared. Now, what's interesting is what does it say? It, it describes a storm, and then, it, then they saw Jesus walking on the sea near the boat, and they were frightened. They weren't frightened. I'm sure they were frightened before, but the whole idea is they were really frightened now because something came that they could not understand. And it's verse 20 that is really the key here. It's in 20, he said, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, the key to understanding this, there's seldom do you well, say that, okay, there's something here that maybe doesn't come across in our English translations. And this is one of the few times that that's the case. Our English Bibles read, do not be afraid, it is I, do not be afraid. In reality, what he said is, I am, don't be afraid. Now, what we've got to realize is that the Bible doesn't translate it that way in our English Bibles because it doesn't make sense. It's linguistically not accurate. You know, you read it and it doesn't make sense. And the fact is actually it wasn't linguistically accurate even in the Greek. It didn't make sense linguistically there as well. It doesn't make sense because he's making a statement beyond it is I. He's actually making a totally different statement. And it doesn't read right unless you understand the deeper point. So therefore, the translators try to make it read better, but in the process, we lose something about the meaning. When he says, I am, he's literally claiming the name of God. It's referring back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, it's the story of Moses coming before the burning bush. And, and as Moses comes before the burning bush and God is speaking to him out of the bush, Moses said to God, verse uh, 13, um, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said this to the, the people of Israel, I am, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so this is clearly a statement of the name of God, I am. It's not that I will be, there's no sense that God ever will be, it's never that I was, it's that I am. I always have been, I always will be, I am. It's, it, there's nothing that God derives from. I am the ultimate reality, and everything derives its meaning and its purpose and its identity from me. There isn't anything that, that I'm held up against, and it changes me. Everything is shaped by me. And Jesus knew what he was, you know, what he was saying here, because it's something that we're going to see him say numerous times throughout the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 8, we read this. Jesus said to the religious leaders, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, it doesn't read right. It doesn't say it right. It's not I was. It's I am. And they understood. When they picked, so they picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus hit, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He says that they understand. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming the name of God that God gave himself back in Exodus 3 which is amazing. And what we see is that Jesus is making a claim that is going to be the claim that is now going to define the next, you know, this, the, the, the next path of the book of John. Here he says, I am. Who am? You know, I am God. I am Yahweh. And we're going to see not only him remaking that claim in John 8, but we're going to see numerous times throughout the gospel that he's going to say, I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. I am the vine. He says it again and again and again. And all of that are saying, I am God. And part of what it means that I am is that I'm this to you. This is part of the way you understand who, what it means that I am, I am God. And for you to accept me, you have to accept me as God. So that's the, that's the key to our series. So when you look at the title there, it's I am. Why? Because that defines this whole middle part of the Gospel of John. He repeatedly makes this claim, starting with his claim to be Yahweh, God himself. And all the other claims are extensions of that one claim. And what we're going to see is that throughout this Gospel, he not only makes these claims repeatedly, but then we see people responding to the claims. We see some people believing it. You see other people responding, well, no, he's not the savior, he's a fraud. These are, you know, we reject the claim. And there's others who seek to then redefine him, not for who he claims to be, but who they want him to be. They demand that he becomes the king that they want, the king, the God that they want, the one that will conform to their expectations. But again, I am means that I'm the ultimate reality that everyone must conform to. I don't conform to people. God doesn't conform to us. The question is, will we conform to him? Will we conform to his reign in our life? Will, he will we conform to his truth? That not only teaches us that he is the king who's in total control, but he's also the king who lovingly reminds us that we are not in control. Again, what you notice here is that we've mentioned a moment ago is that in verse 16, he sent his disciples. They go out there, and it's obvious that they had arranged that Jesus said, if I'm not there, you know, then go out without me. 
And Jesus intentionally withdraws not only from the people but from the disciples and he sends them out into the storm by themselves. And I think he's trying to, again, what was the problem? The people said, we're in control and we want you to help us. And Jesus is saying, now I'm going to try to teach you you're not in control. And it's not about me trying to help you with your agenda. I want to show you that you're totally out of control. And it's got to be my agenda. It's saying something about the nature of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Again, they wanted to make Jesus king. They saw him as a king whom they could control, a God who was like a genie who they could, would meet their needs and their desires. And when Jesus sent his disciples out in the lake, knowing that they would be facing an overwhelming storm, he was teaching something about the nature of us and about the nature of his ministry. As, as the disciples are even out there, they're fearing for their safety. They're fearing for their life. They're rowing, trying to get to that destination and being overwhelmed. Do you think they're thinking about the Romans at that point in time? Are they thinking about their hunger? No, they're thinking about survival. And I think that's one of the things that God's trying to help us to be aware of. When we come and we have the God that we want, you see, these are all the things that I want, and God's saying, no, I want to get you to draw something deeper. The issue isn't just, okay, well, how do I empower you to accomplish the goals that you want? No, the bigger issue is, how do I, how do I deal with the issues of your soul? so that you have a relationship with God, so that your eternity is in a place of reward in heaven with God instead of in a place of eternal punishment? How do I give you a relationship with God and restore the thing that is most essential to your life now and in eternity? He came to save us from drowning in the storm. But the reality is that sometimes we're not aware that that's our deepest spiritual need. And so sometimes God puts us in places that, that breaks our illusion of control to help us become aware how much we need him. See, if we come and we say, well, I think I'm in control. I think I've got everything. That's why the Bible talks in the one place where Jesus said, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through a needle. Why? Because if we think we're wealthy and in control, we don't think we need him. And so Jesus often will send us in the midst of a crisis because then we recognize our need and we recognize a need for a God that will save us. We recognize that it's not about our agenda. When we're in the middle of the crisis, the things that seemed important suddenly aren't anymore. And we start to realize the things that are most important. To use even the imagery here, the question is, okay, are, you know, we're coming in and, and do we, you know, when we're in that point of desperation, we need him to get in the boat. And when we get him in the boat, we say, Jesus, we just need you to get in the boat. We need you to take us to the destination. Wherever you take us, that's okay. You're in charge. And it's not just a one-time surrender. It's how we come to Jesus Christ by saying, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. I ask you to take my sin, the penalty of my sin, and pay for it. He does at the cross. But then for those who are believers, it's repeatedly coming and saying, God, expose areas of my life that I want to control. God, I need to surrender that. I need you to give you control. I need to give up the things that I think I need. I realize that at times you're going to take me down a path that seems, it seems like a storm. But God, I surrender because you're the great I am. And you remind me of my need because that drives me to a renewed dependence on you because only in that am I going to be healthy. See, because in reminding us our need, he's also reminding us that he is the creator who by nature is in total control. That we see our need, but we find our fulfillment in him. See, again, when he steps out, he's walking there and he makes this claim, I am, 
He's making an incredible claim to be God. The fact is, we understand anybody can make any claim. I mean, I could come in here and I say, you know, I'm a great basketball player. I played in the NBA, and I was a great, you know, and you look at that and you say, I can make the claim, but the facts seem to kind of argue against it. Um, I can make a claim, you know, I'm, I'm a, a high-demand fashion model. You know, just last week, a shampoo company offered me a contract to, to, to you know, to show off, you know, the, the, the product, and, and, and again, I don't think it's that funny, but, it, it, you know, but <laughs> the facts dispute the reality. Anybody can make a claim. Now, especially if you make this incredible claim, I am God, and you look at that and say, how could you make that claim? When here you look at Jesus, and he's standing in the middle of, a, a, you know, a, a middle of the sea, three miles from the shore, in the middle of a great storm, everything is crazy around them, and he's standing on the water and says, I am. And they're like, okay, you know, you've, you've, you've established your credentials. Okay, there's reason to believe that claim. If there's ever a reason to believe that he is who he is, this established it. And so he is the great I am. And he's the great I am that speaks to us and says, okay, in the middle of that storm, yes, I'm going to drive you to a point of desperation, but it's because I want to be the one that solves that desperation. And if I understand that, I not need to only understand who he is, but then accept him as, as who he is. Accept him as king the one who is in charge of everything. And that means that, that everything's going to be safe because he's in charge of all the things that I, I'm not, that he's in charge. But to accept him means that I also need to accept him as the one who's in charge of my life and embrace him as my king. See, part of this, as you see in the middle of that, in the middle of the crisis, yes, he sent the disciples out, and yes, he's the great king, but it also teaches us that he's the great friend who pursues us and, and enters our storms. And yes, there's going to be times that he's going to send us out, but look at what it says here. It says in verse 19, they had rowed out for about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. They were frightened. He, he walks out to them. He walks into the middle of the storm, and he says, it, you know, I am, do not be afraid. Verse 21, and then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I mean, this is an incredible thing. What do you see here? He's doing a miracle, and the miracle is that he's saying, my presence is going to be wherever you are. I am going to be there in the place that, that you think I cannot be. The disciples thought that Jesus abandoned them and sent them out their own in the storm, and they're feeling overwhelmed, and he's saying, no, I was always there. And I'm walking out in the middle of the storm and telling you, I am. You know, it's interesting Look at verse 21 again. They were glad to take him in a boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You notice it never says that he stopped the storm. He may have, it may have, you know, other passages, if they're the same story, he probably did, but John never says that. It just came, and he identified himself, I am, and, and as a result, they took him into the boat, and you know what I think John's saying? It doesn't matter if the wind stopped. It doesn't matter if the storm stopped. Because Jesus was there, and because Jesus was there, he took them to the, to the destination they needed to be at. And, and the story's over. Once we have Jesus there, when we have Jesus, without Jesus, we feel abandoned. When without Jesus, we realize the storm is so much greater than we are. But when we recognize who Jesus is, and when we have him in our life, we have him in the boat, we recognize that he's so much greater than, 
than, you know, than the storm that's around us, and it's safe. I think, in a sense, Jesus is saying to them, I've shown you that in the dark and the storm, I'm there. And I will let nothing separate me from you. I will walk on water to be with you. I will do whatever it takes to be with you, whatever it takes to be in your boat whenever you need me. And when you take me into the boat with joy, we're going to arrive at the desired destination. It may not be where you started out from, but it's going to be where you need to be. Jesus promises in, in, in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what it's saying here. Yeah, and he sent him out beforehand. He sent him in the storm, but even that was part of his plan. And even there, he was there with them. And yes, he waited for quite a while. He let them struggle against it because it's, in his love, he reminds us of our need. But in seeing our need, we see his provision. It's, it's the promise that Paul makes in Romans. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No matter what storm we face, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself for us all, how will he not also along with us graciously give us all things? Continues in verse 32, or 33. What, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And many of us say, yeah, but I did this. And we're so aware of all the things that we have, have done that seemingly lose that, you know, that control. God makes these promises not because we deserve it, because it's his grace. And Jesus has made us righteous. And, and what's going to take that away? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ that it, uh, love of God that is in Christ our Lord. What an incredible truth. That yes, God will send us in the storm. Yes, God will allow us to be overwhelmed with things that are far greater than we are. That he will remind us that we're not in control. Because it's his way of reminding us that he is in control. And in our weakness, we find his strength. And when we then rest in his strength, he reminds us that he will walk through any storm to be with us. That there is nothing that will ever separate us from him. That there are times that we may feel like he has. But the fact is that these are the promises that are true. And even as we talked about last week, we're going to struggle and we're going to doubt. And, and that's okay. But in the middle of that struggle, in that middle of the doubt, we need to choose to believe that which we know to be true that which God has promises, promised that is an expression of his character. Now let me quickly just point out the last point of the passage. We must receive Jesus as who he is, not who we want him to be. Again, if we try to make him the king we want him to be, you know, what we're doing is we're not having a relationship with the God who is, we're having a relationship with our own thoughts, with our own, our own projection of our own mind. It's not a relationship with God. If we try to demand that he become the king that we want him to be, what do we see here? He withdraws. He doesn't accept any you know, worship as king. No, 
we have to accept him and embrace him as the king who he is. And the only way to truly accept him is to accept him for the king that he is. The one who is truly in charge of everything. And again, that means if he's in charge of everything, if he's in charge of nature, if he's in charge of creation, if he's in charge of the wind and the waves, that means to accept him, I need to embrace him and give him the right to be in charge of my life as God is king, as Lord. And even used the illustration of these pictures that are here. And either we can be like the people, we've got our carts and we've got our agenda and we want to go to Rome and we want to overthrow the, you know, the, you know, whatever opposition we have in life and, and, and we want him to be able to provide the manna and provide the food and fulfill our desires. And we can come and it's our agenda and we're trying to get Jesus to join our agenda and he's going to withdraw. Or we could say the other pictures, we're like the disciples and we're in the boat. And there are times we're going to realize we're not in control. At times it's going to, you know, we, in fact, the sooner we realize that, even at, at, at good times, the better. That we realize that we don't have control. And so it's not trying to get Jesus to join my agenda. It's acknowledging, Jesus, I'm in the middle of the storm. And my only hope is to invite you in. And I'm asking for salvation. And in that salvation, to save me from the storm, to save me from what I'm dealing with. But in that salvation, I'm also accepting that as the one who's in charge, I'm willing to go to whatever destination you bring me to. Because what I need, the greatest need, isn't the things that I want. The greatest need, the thing that you came, the needs that you came to me, are the things that I, the need of, of, of my sin, of my broken relationship with God. You've come to make those things right. Because if those things are right, everything else will get right in time. Do you have that relationship with God? Do you recognize that in this story that he's calling us to embrace him for who he is. To, in a sense, invite him in the boat. To give him charge. To give him reign. And when we do so, to, to find the benefits of that relationship and all that come with it. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.